Learn how to alter your DNA. Expand your consciousness. Heal your body. Attain oneness. Sound, light, heat, vibration, and emotion. Changing us. Learn from the masters and grow wise. Hello and welcome to Health in Action Live. This is Annette Blanchard, your host, bringing you 60 minutes of Healthy Talk Radio. Today, I have a special guest on the line with me, Dr. Rita Ellathorpe from Tustin Longevity Center. Um, I met probably Dr. Ellathorpe maybe 30 years when I was working with the Whitaker Wellness Institute, and so it's a pleasure to have her with us on the program today. First of all, um, Dr. Ellathorpe has been in practice for several decades and brings to us a diversity of knowledge from both the traditional medical model as well as alternative integrative medical approach, but has the added bonus that she also has a research scientist perspective when it comes to treating her patients and the treatment programs that she develops at her medical clinic. She received her medical degree from Chicago Medical School. She completed her residency and family practice at Warmock Army Hospital in Fort Bragg, and then she relocated to Fort Knox, where she served as an emergency room staff physician, general medical officer, and flight surgeon as chief of aviation clinic um, in the 80s and 90s. And then she received a second doctorate in integrative medicine at Capital University of Integrative Medicine in Washington, D.C., where she also acts as a guest faculty member and also continues to teach anti-aging medicine and natural hormone replacement therapy for both men and women. She's also a diplomat of the American Board of Anti-Aging Medicine, as well as the founder and medical director at Tustin Longevity Center. But one of the interesting things also that I love about Dr. Ellathorpe is her experience and her expertise with other clinics and physicians that she's worked with through the many years, one of them being Dr. Stan Brzezinski and his research institute in Houston, Texas, um, where she participated in cancer therapy investigations. And then later on, she went on to work with the world-renowned Whitaker Medical Institute and came alongside of them to uh, help develop their uh, natural hormone replacement. So, Dr. Ellisorp, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the program, especially after I know you have a busy day every day at the clinic. So thank you and welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me, Annette. It's a pleasure to uh, share and talk about things that are so dear to us. Well, you know, when I think about, you know, medicine as a whole and you look at, you know, over the last hundred years, you know, we can really see the impact of, you know, our dietary changes in society as well as the impact that that's having on our future generations behind us. You know, we've moved away from homemade to pre-made, from slow cooked to fast foods that are convenient and from being significantly lower toxic exposure to staggering amounts of chemicals that are found in our bloodstreams as well as the bloodstreams of our un born children. Now, as a physician practicing for the past four decades, what fascinates me most is what you've seen from your perspective as far back as a young girl whose father was a food scientist. Can you share a little bit about your experience as a child growing up and how it perhaps impacted the way you think as a physician today? Sure. Uh, my father uh, was a uh, 
uh, part of the uh, food research uh, team at uh, Armour Foods in Chicago, Illinois, where the uh, um, you know meat came in from all over the Midwest in the stockyards there, and they were starting to develop TV dinners in the 1950s, and my dad was uh, tasked to try and help slow down the rate of uh, rotting or the spoiling of the food. Uh, and even uh, when you freeze food, it can have what you call a freezer burn taste. And all of this had to deal with oxidative damage to the fats that are in uh, meats that are in these TV dinners. So uh, all my life as a little girl, uh, actually my mom broke her back. Uh, she got better but when I was four years old. So I had to go to the lab with my dad. And I can remember seeing the benches there with all the bottles bubbling and boiling, and the scientists uh, were having fun showing me how to change colors in the bottles with pH changes and stuff. I understand it now, but <clears throat> it was quite fascinating. Well, I, I also listened to them uh, marketing uh, the TV dinners back then, and I really was uh, taken aback, and so was my father, when they talked about the people who were going to buy their product, how they could get us to eat anything they wanted, and uh, we would beg for it even if it wasn't healthy, uh, if they put enough <clears throat> uh, color dye in it, if they put enough uh, sugar, uh, things like this in it. And so I had from, I'd say, age four, uh, a very early um, idea that marketing it does not necessarily provide uh, quality material. And then when I was seven, <clears throat> my grandfather uh, had angina that was unstable, which by definition, if you are at rest and you start experiencing chest pain, that's called unstable angina. And it usually predicts a very uh, poor outcome uh, and uh, death uh, to be uh, you know, shortly happening. And I remember my grandfather struggling to get his nitroglycerin uh, pill into his mouth uh, while he was seated as he was having the chest pain. And uh, my father had learned about <clears throat> the um, Great Lakes Academy for the Advancement of Medicine, GLACAM. And this was a chelation academy where they were using EDTA chelation therapy to improve the uh, microcirculation and reduce heavy metal toxicity. So he got my grandfather into chelation in the late 50s. Uh, and it turned out, uh, it turned my grandfather's health totally around. And my grandfather lived until he saw me go to medical school. So I was greatly impressed with uh, EDTA chelation and circulation uh, firsthand as a child seeing my grandfather survive. And then later on, unfortunately, I myself uh, got a pan-myocarditis from a Coxsackie virus in the 60s from a strep throat. I was hospitalized and hospitalized for four months uh, continuously with cardiac uh, monitoring. Um, I got a flabby heart. About 10% survivability from a pan-myocarditis back in the uh, 1960s. And, uh, my uh, dad got me chelated uh, with uh, Dr. Ray Evers. Dr. Ray Evers was in Andalusia, Alabama, and he 
is a forefather of chelation therapy. And I was chelated, and some other uh, therapies were given to me along with high-dose vitamin C. And uh, what turned around was my health. I, I became so healthy. I think I was 15 when that happened to me. By the time I was 18, <clears throat> I had passed an Air Force physical exam for ROTC to enter the military uh, for uh, college. And it just shows you the tremendous healing ability of the body. And I had absolutely no damage, really. I have a first-degree heart block from it all, but it hasn't limited me at all. And it did keep me out of the, the uh, fly, flight school and stuff like that. So I have a, a very high respect for the uh, uh, position in your town, at least back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, who really uh, listened to the patient and, and looked for ways to help them. Because back in the 1960s and 70s, there was really no access to uh, uh, coronary artery uh, uh, catheterization, open heart surgery. I think the first heart surgery was in 1964 in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, Dr. Uh, Barnhart uh, did the first heart surgery. And when, when the excitement of open heart surgery and invasive cardiac procedures emerged in the mid-60s, only uh, big cities and, and uh, the uh, access to the, these therapies, life-saving as they are for a terrible situation, it was so glamorous that cardiologists who had been using chelation for decades, EDTA chelation therapy, for instance, had been around for uh, maybe 40 years at that time. And most countries, it's so cheap, it's so easy to administer to patients to help their circulation from their head to their toe. Um, they would use this, and uh, that's because they didn't have the finances uh, to have these surgical suites. And by the time Abbott dropped the, uh, the uh, patent on EDTA, then it fell into uh, disrepute, not because it wasn't a good therapy, but because it was too glamorous to, and too much money to be made with uh, catheterizations, open heart surgeries, and the like. And so it was poo-pooed. And, and Dr. Ray Evers, who actually was my physician when I had my heart trouble in my teens, in the 1960s, <clears throat> he was the physician that brought it to the United States Congress uh, to defend why he was using EDTA chelation therapy for many, many uh, disease problems his patients had. He was not a cardiologist, and there weren't many, you know, uh, cardiologists back in the 1960s. Uh, I think the first heart attack that was uh, identified was in the 1920s. Dr. Scott was uh, from Hopkins, and he was maybe the first renowned heart specialist uh, in the New York City area. So heart attacks uh, basically came along later on, and, and uh, <clears throat> Dr. Ray Evers uh, was able to explain to Congress, because, because he was being challenged for continuing to use chelation therapy, uh, and not for, let's say, angina like my grandfather, but for peripheral vascular or neuropathies or macular degeneration or glaucoma or transient ischemic brain attacks or many other, anywhere in the body you need circulation, which is everywhere. So the U.S. Congress in 1964 granted the 
um, the act that says a, a medically trained physician has the uh, authority to use uh, prescription medications on an off-label basis based on their um, knowledge as a doctor uh, and uh, safely administering it. So chelation therapy, uh, you know, lost its uh, uh, patent and its uh, glamour and the excitement of uh, cardiac invasive surgeries became such a uh, exciting thing that uh, I think they just forgot to teach people about the good old basics of what EDTA chelation can do. I know that's long-winded, but but that's uh, that's exactly what happened to EDTA chelation. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, the Whitaker Institute, who you also came alongside of, you know, they were world-renowned for reversing heart disease and diabetes naturally or, quote-unquote, bypassing bypass surgery. And, you know, when I had spoken to, um, I had a client as a cardiologist, you know, and I was asking him, well, what about, you know, EDTA, you know, like the, uh, the IV therapies for cardiovascular and, of course, like you said, he did a high degree of cardiovascular surgeries, and he knew nothing about uh, chelation therapy and totally discounted the therapeutic value, therapeutic value of it at all. Any other physician that I have spoken to, you ask them about chelation therapy and what do you do with uh, chelation therapy, and literally none of them even really know about it. So well, one of the other it, things you have a- said that... Pardon? Go ahead. Well, I'm, it's not a surprise if if the training centers for physicians in the United States are uh, in large part controlled with their uh, their uh, training protocol by pharmaceuticals and interest groups. They're going to uh, promote the things that those interest groups make money off of, which is hospital-based invasive uh, therapies. If you have something that is uh, inexpensive, uh, a, a tiny fraction of the cost of a uh, open heart surgery, and with uh, tremendous uh, cardiovascular um, potential for uh, relieving ischemic diseases peripherally and, and centrally in the heart, why why would you teach doctors about something so safe and, and uh, with 70 years of experience? So it comes down to marketing, and it comes down to uh, who owns the airways and the, the textbook printing and the agenda of the curriculum. So that's why we suffer this way, and, and that's why I applaud you for a program like this to to just really uh, go out in the highways and the byways and just find out what's happening with these doctors. I mean, I, I just finished a full heavy day of work. I work full time uh, and I've been doing it 40 years and I'm going strong. I'm in my, I'm 65 and I, I, uh, I chelate myself and I do many other uh, holistic things as well, but I applaud you for, um, reaching out to ask us these questions and and uh, some of the information. And, you know, have you, I, I should tell you about the tech trial one and the tech trial two, right? You haven't heard of those, have you, in the no. news? No. Well, the tech trial one uh, is called the Trial to Assess Chelation Therapy, TAC, T-A-C-T, Trial to Assess Chelation Therapy. And the physicians 
who had long seen worldwide, you have to understand, chelation therapy was used all over the world from the 1930s on. And uh, many clinicians like myself saw uh, its tremendous value. <clears throat> and I should put in here uh, the caveat that I am not saying we shouldn't have uh, hospitals that can do open heart surgery or um, angiograms and uh, uh, coronary artery bypass grafting and the like. I'm glad it's available for the unfortunate souls that um, allow themselves to become so diseased. But to allow the idea that <clears throat> Uh, we're going to rely on that for our treatment uh, methodologies when we know that there's other preventative lifestyles and therapies, I think does a disservice to the idea of saying we're in a healthcare industry. Uh, it more sounds like we're in a disease management for profit industry. So Tech Trial 1 uh, was created by uh, the people who uh, supported chelation therapy physicians, and they saw this bias of uh, the emerging specialties in the 1970s and the 1980s. And uh, when that happened, they proposed that we get uh, a um, NIH uh, grant to study chelation therapy, a uh, double-blind crossover placebo-controlled uh, study, which is the highest quality study there is. And eventually, it was approved, and this study uh, basically ran over about 10 years uh, in a uh, multi-centered area, both in-base hospital and out of the hospital in the, in the United States and Canada, where you had to have had a heart attack. All the men uh, admitted to the program uh, were um, clearly defined by, um, you know, enzymes, treponin levels, um, uh, of having a heart attack, and then they got the standard of care like any other heart attack patient would have, but half of them uh, were relegated to an IV therapy that had just um, water in it, and the other uh, half were uh, uh, blinded and sent to an actual treatment arm that had EDTA chelation in it. EDTA is a man-made amino acid that has the electrochemical ability to attract divalent cations. These are um, heavy metals, all heavy toxic metals that are oxidatively damaging to the human being are divalent cations. They have a net positive charge. So this amino acid is able to grab the lead, the tin, the aluminum, the arsenic, the uh, lead, um, and many, many others, uh, gadolinium, uh, like that's in many of your IV dyes for imaging studies, and so many more. And after uh, 10 years and getting 1,708 men through this uh, program and the seals were broken, they found a uh, clearly statistical benefit in those who actually got the real EDTA as opposed to the control group that um, uh, just got the bag of water, so to say. And uh, they had reduced um, rates of death. They had reduced unstable angina. They had less rehospitalizations and less having to uh, reopen stents that were performed. They were treated with standard of care, and quite a few of these people had uh, stents that were put in, but they uh, often uh, get reclotted. 
And so the study went on to show a, a truly statistically uh, significant benefit for those who were chelated. And by the way, as time went on, when the first study came out, I myself was on the board of ACAM, which is the American College for uh, the Advancement of Medicine. And this uh, was uh, created in 1972. This uh, organization was birthed out of Blakecam, which was the Great Lakes uh, Academy for the Advancement of Medicine. And out of chelation in 1972 have been born all these other um, alternative, healthy, anti-aging organizations like A4M and IAOM and uh, many other healthy, you know, organizations that are trying to promote uh, lectures and, you know, radio broadcasts like this. So I greatly respect chelation therapy as the foundation upon which many, many wonderful uh, alternative and complementary treatments have been birthed, you might say, or made popular. Because the doctors who did it were your good old doctors like the Dr. Ray Evers, who was my doctor from Andalusia, Alabama. And uh, he stood the time uh, tests and, and trials of getting uh, chelation presented before the U.S. Congress and um, allowing every physician to use any prescription FDA-approved drug off-label. Like, I don't know how many women are out there who uh, complain of edema in their ankles, and the doctor will write them a diuretic hydrochlorothiazide, uh, and that's an off-label use because uh, hydrochlorothiazide is a uh, medication that produces uh, water loss and it was designed for blood pressure management. But um, a doctor has the right to use it safely for other uh, reasons. And so Dr. Ray Evers did a great thing for us. And I think Americans need to understand the value of the general practitioner, that doctor that's out there for decades and decades and, and has always worked and seen everything coming at him at the door, not just one narrow field, but I'm not saying anything against specialists. If I have a very serious problem of one aspect of my body, I, I would like someone very skilled in that area if my general practitioner, family doctor, internist can't uh, manage it. But I would say for the most part, 90, 93, 4% of everything that comes to me, I can handle without having to refer to a specialist. But uh, yeah, the tech trial was published in 2013. And uh, uh, I was on the board of ACAM at the time when it was published, and so we were able to listen to uh, the principal investigator, Dr. Uh, Tony Lamas, uh, who himself was a cardiologist. And he presented these favorable results, and himself as a cardiologist decided that uh, he was going to use uh, chelation therapy um, more often and became, so to say, converted. But when he went to his colleagues at the, um, uh, the American College of Cardiology, they all yawned, you know, more or less was his statement. They weren't interested in uh, reviving uh, the great, cheap, effective, and multi-valuable blessing of EDTA chelation. And so he came up with a second trial. The TAC-2 trial is ongoing right now. 
and the NIH uh, is dumping in another 40 million. The first trial was 30 million roughly to run, and now this trial is 40 million. And they're reproducing the events, the, the, uh, you know, in the studies. Uh, and uh, that he did because he was so tired of his colleagues saying, uh, you know, nitpicking little things. I mean, there's no, I'm, no one's perfect on the planet, and there's no study that's absolutely perfect. But any area they could nitpick about the TAC trial one, Tony Lamas then redesigned uh, to address any of the uh, highly, highly, uh, you know, uh, exhaustive criticism of the first study. But mm -hmm. no one can say there isn't research out there now. It's been proven. And then, of course, for me, I've got almost 56, 58 years of personal experience of chelation therapy helping everyone. You know, the thing that you talked about as well earlier is that, you know, chelation therapy is not only something that's used for cardiovascular because you talked about the importance of the microcirculation and how it's not, it was good for glaucoma and it was good for neuropathy and it was good for numerous different things. Now, and then also the thing that was interesting before I had learned that, you know, even the guys that were painting the bridges, uh, not the bridges, but the ships, you know, they got the heavy metal lead poisoning. And, um, you know, how that also affects uh, the brain. And so the importance at your clinic, you do a lot of work with, you know, heavy metal testing. And I remember I had a patient one time um, that had MS. And, um, and I knew something was not quite right. But even with a, a condition like MS, you know, I referred her to her and her aluminum was off the charts from cheeseburgers or the aluminum apparently that they put into cheeseburgers or something. So an MS patient or somebody that has Parkinson's, um, are these things that, you know, chelation therapy would be helpful with as well? Well, there isn't anything that chelation really couldn't benefit because it improves the entire circulation of the whole human body. That's why it's so sad that it's not uh, better taught and understood as, something valuable. Um, but I don't want to uh, emphasize monotherapy. I, I also want to point out, if you're going to open up the tiny capillaries to your scalp and try and grow a better, lust, lusty, nice, colorful head of hair down to better toenails down to your feet, uh, you've got to drink enough good water and you've got to uh, stop making your blood sticky and thick and sludgy with a high-carb uh, high fructose uh, diet, and you've got to use systemic enzymes to help break up and promote disinflammation and remove debris old cells. And you've got to use powerful antioxidants, although uh, EDTA chelation is a antioxidant. And you have to, you know, use your B vitamins, and you have to exercise, and you have to get a good night's sleep. And it's good to have a happy attitude, not a bitter heart. You know, I mean. We don't just try and make chelation available. We take a look at a person here, the five physicians that work here at Tustin Longevity Center, and we're looking at the whole you um, surrounding whatever particular problem. I, one of the things I notice with people that have cardiovascular disease, once they start seeing their uh, uh, cardiovascular system improve and they have less symptoms, they still continue to chelate on a maintenance level because they'll find that their rash is gone or their joint pain is better or their sleep is enhanced or their 
using less insulin or, you know, just any number of things. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the other uh, um, probably things that have become uh, on the hottest new trends are, you know, these IV bars that are popping up all over the uh, place they're called, you know, quote-unquote hydration rooms. I've seen more of them pop up in and around Orange County. You hear about it on the media and you have, you know, celebrities rushing because they've had a late night out in the town and they run to an IV bar, you know, yet IV therapies are things that you have been doing in your clinic, in your practice for many, many years. Um, what is your thought on these um quote-unquote IV bars that are popping up and they have this select number of cocktails that they can have? Well, I'm for it because I'm for free enterprise. And if it's safe, which it is, and uh, it is well-supervised by uh, well-trained, licensed individuals, doctors and nurses, I can only see it as a benefit. But um, I have... Uh, my concerns, uh, I want to make sure that there is a physician on hand. Uh, we always are present when we have the chelation or any of our many, many IVs uh, to help uh, uh, anti-aging and, and the health of our patients. So my IV suite is open and it is open to walk-ins as well. But my nurses are very experienced and we physicians are right here next door uh, so that if the nurse has a question about any IVs that are requested, uh, we can scrutinize this. And and normally we say, yes, they can go ahead with it. And uh, mm-hmm. so I'm in favor of it. I'm, I'm very much in favor of high-dose vitamin C instead of such abuse of antibiotics, you know, for the common flu. And most of us get flu uh, without uh, need for antibiotics, you know. So a high-dose vitamin C drip would be great if you had... Uh, you know, been exposed with toxins, uh, too much alcohol, or your kind of workplace, and there are many workplace toxins, it's nice to get glutathione intravenously, and it's nice to get alpha-lipoic acid intravenously. And we find many benefits uh, neurologically when we can go directly into the vein. Uh, We'll even see some of the uh, Parkinsonian rigidity um, uh, loosen up, and we can see some of the uh, uh, MS, uh, you know, uh, lack of uh, stability and the gait and stuff improve because we're improving the microcirculation and we're delivering powerful, powerful uh, antioxidants uh, right directly into the blood that get right to those Uh, nerves, and in the brain, it passes the blood-brain barrier. It helps detoxify. It, you know, I've been around this for 58 years. What can I say? It it helps the cardiovascular, but it helps you breathe well, too. Um, It helps uh, improve the um, uh, stickiness of the blood. It's a a very uh, mild, natural, uh, uh, anti-platelet um, action and it has uh, improved cell membrane repair because it gets circulation right to all your cells. It helps You're breaking with wound up a little healing. Bit. <clears throat> it helps with wound healing, uh, burns. It helps with uh, migraines. It helps with blood pressure. Uh, you know, even erectile function. Uh, well, you know, I guess you know when you say 
it helps with even erectile dysfunction. You know, that's a, a primary concern, and there's a lot of talk about the blue pill. But when you're talking about the microcirculation and the, the benefit of the cardiovascular system and whatnot, you know, I've seen also uh, patients that were Parkinson's patients where their gait was so affected they could, like, hardly walk, and their shaking was, you know... Um, you know, which also puts a lot of stress on the body as far as, you know, the muscular system. And, and it was really quite surprising the difference in the before and after of the IV therapies. But as you mentioned, you not only do um, one thing, you have a multifaceted approach because, as you said, it's never only one thing. And where you get the greatest results is when you integrate, you know, a multifaceted approach. The other thing is um, is that you talked about, you know, the importance of, you know, enzyme therapy in our gut health, you know, and I also noticed when I was working with the cancer clinic and cancer patients, many of them have huge digestive disorders. And, and even as we age, you know, we have problems with digestion. How important um, is the gut health and the enzymes? Because we have probiotics, prebiotics, digestive enzymes, proteolytic enzymes. And, you know, it's all kind of confusing when you go and you go to mother's market because typically people will go to, a, you know, a health food store to say, okay, I need an enzyme. Can you simplify the enzyme factor for us? Well, in general, there are two major classes of enzymes. One is to help you with that actual food you just consumed sitting in your stomach, which will literally sit there uh, for a long time, uh, hoping that you'll produce naturally enough enzymes of your own and enough acid on your own to adequately break down the proteins and the fats and uh, the carbohydrates are usually easily broken down. And uh, the other set of enzymes are what we call systemic enzymes. Uh, these are enzymes that are taken typically on an empty stomach that are absorbed into the body uh, bloodstream and are going to go to your knee pain, they're going to go to your inflamed sinuses, they're going to go to your congested head and vertigo, it's going to go to your uh, back pain, it's going to help disinflame your gut, it's going to help you with your PMS and your um, fibroid pains and your endometriotic pains. So. Enzymes help break up the abnormal um, uh, presence of um, cells. You know, we're turning cells over all the time. If you have a fibroid, if you have fibrocystic breasts, if you have a lot of scar tissue, if you have sinus congestion, if you have abscesses, if you have bad acne, you know, it's, it's just countless cell-damaged areas that need to be cleaned away, and you've got to have uh, a microcirculation that reaches to that injured, injured cell, this is where chelation comes in, you have to drink enough water to open up those little capillaries. You need to take in the enzymes to get it there to chew up the uh, injured cells and remove them away. Plus, you know, there are uh, even electromagnetic energy methods called, I don't know if the people have heard of a beamer mat, but the technology today in understanding our electromagnetic environment is absolutely astounding. And we can actually witness uh, improved capillary bed flow dynamics uh, with using a very specific, well-researched uh, uh, frequency 
of electromagnetic en energy that helps capillary beds move along. So if, if it helps uh, this, you're going to feel better. The inflammation is going to go away. You're going to uh, heal quicker with whatever area uh, of problem you have. Like all my surgery patients, if they're going for you know a knee replacement or they're going for a valve heart replacement or they're going for <clears throat> whatever they have to do, a hysterectomy or anything, I have them do a high-dose vitamin C therapy uh, IV uh, pre and post these procedures to really help uh, detoxify, build up their immune system, help them to uh, handle the stress and debris of the general anesthesia. I mean, it's just overwhelming uh, to see my patients do so well and uh, <clears throat> why this isn't um, more available. Now, again, I am not against my colleagues who do the surgery. I'm not going to go and do a hysterectomy. I'm not going to go and do a knee replacement. I'm not going to do any of these wonderfully... Uh, uh, intricate surgeries, but my goodness, uh, help the patient do better by understanding why their circulation needs to be addressed so that they have better healing and less scar formation and cosmetically look much better after these kind of uh, procedures and get back into their normal life and daily activities uh, much quicker. Mm -hmm. So our enzyme therapies are critical as far as the inflammatory process, reducing that inflammation that doesn't matter really where it goes, correct? Correct, correct. Okay. Now, the other uh, uh, confusion or there's, you know, like over the years of doing many different interviews, I am telling you, there has been so many different types of diets. You know, at the the Whitaker Institute, they have you doing a certain diet, but another clinic has you doing a certain diet. And the latest um, diet or, or craze is the keto craze. Now, when I listen to, you know, and I look and research a lot of it, because now you are seeing a lot more cancer patients start to go more towards a ketogenic diet when before it was primarily vegetarian-based. Right, because before you know, you go down to some therapy clinics in Mexico, and it's like they go strictly vegetarian, all juicing. They don't eat any meat, and they don't eat any dairy. And what is your perspective after forty years of seeing what works and what doesn't? Well, <clears throat> if you look um, at some recent publications, I'm going to uh, answer that by taking a little bit of a circle of uh, the wagons here. One of the editors-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine was Marcia Engel. She was a physician, and she held that job for about 20 years. I think she ended her <clears throat> tenure as the editor-in-chief of probably the world's most premier medical journal, longest published medical journal. And here's what she uh, said. I'm going to uh, give you a quote uh, of Marcia Engel, the, a physician and longtime editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. She said, it's simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I reach slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And then the Lancet uh, uh, editor-in-chief, Dr. Horton, basically said the same thing and published that in 2015. So when you're saying uh, what 
is the diet, I have to let you know that <clears throat> there is a book out there called The Big Fat Lie uh, by a um, woman, I'm not sure I can pronounce her name uh, correctly, Tolakoi, something like that. Um, I, I, I can't pronounce her name correctly. But anyway, she published um, a article in the uh, uh, British Medical Journal in uh, September 23rd, 2015, and in it, she, she titled it this way, The Scientific Report Guiding the U.S. Dietary Guidelines. Is it scientific? And I'm going to read that again. The Scientific Report Guiding the U.S. Dietary Guidelines. Is it scientific? And she did such an excellent um, uh, uh, job of ripping up the uh, money influences of the organizations like the American Heart Association and uh, uh, other uh, organizations that sit on the boards that feed the U.S. dietary guidelines. And they reviewed this every five years. So it came out in 2015, and it'll come out again in 2020. And there she just goes point after point showing bias, showing inadequate <clears throat> uh, uh, scientific uh, quotes using epidemiology, although interesting, epidemiology is, is the lowest form of scientific uh, publication. It's just above uh, anecdotal. It'd be like a case study. I could talk to you about any case, like my grandfather. And, and it's, it's rife with um, financial industries, bias, poor scientific, and ignoring the recent research, for instance, that it has brought up that these uh, saturated fats uh, are not uh, considered a consider uh, a contributor to coronary heart disease. In fact, uh, uh, when you look at all the confusion, it's amazing that poor patients can come up with any plan. But uh, what I will say is this: your logic, your common sense, should guide you as a patient with your with your physician. And when I talk to my patients and I show them how sugar gets. Uh, uh, water uh, thicker, it makes water thicker, and it crystallizes into little crystals, hard rock candy. And I say to them, look, if you are eating a lot of glucose and starch and carbohydrates are just polymers of little sugar molecules linked together, sugar is a, 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 a dipeptide of two, it's not a peptide, it's a uh, two sugar molecules of glucose and uh, fructose. And, and if we eat all this sugar, uh, we are going to make our bodies sweeter and more sugary and more sticky, like gum sticking on your shoe, I often tell my patient. And for decades, long before this carbohydrate, ketogenic diet, I have been a low-carb. I think all my patients for the past 20 years here at Tesla Longevity Center are sick and tired of hearing Dr. Ellisorp say, Cut your carbs, reduce your carbs, get your insulin down, get your fasting glucose down, get your hemoglobin A1C down, get your triglycerides down. Because all the research, and I'm telling you, all the credible research has validated that um, cardiovascularly and even in cancer research therapy, the, the blood flow that is better is the blood uh, plasma that has a low uh, blood sugar ranging between 55 and, and, say, 75. None of this 90 and 105 or 125. It's, it's ridiculous what we tolerate. 
and it, it clogs up mo most of the data in trying to determine what really did the study achieve um, on many of these epidemiological uh, uh, studies that they quote in the uh, U.S. Dietary Guidelines. And this affects everything. The U.S. Dietary Guidelines affect how our military is fed. It affects all our public educational schools. It affects all of our uh, uh, training in nursing and medical schools. And, and this dietary guideline, if it's based on uh, imperfect science and bias, uh, it's costing us, what, the new epidemic of diabetes we're seeing explode all over, the new epidemic of obesity, the new epidemic of more and more heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's. No, I think we got to use our common sense, and we've got to say uh, fasting, intermittent fasting, lower carbs, uh, moderate exercise, uh, plenty of hydration, water, adequate sleep, uh, learn to laugh at life, have, have a joke or two, you know, have a happy heart, take some enzymes, get some powerful, well-researched antioxidants in your system, uh, and you're going to see it go a long way. And all I can say is for decades it's worked for my patients. Uh, when you talk about, you know, like, um, you know, our blood sugar levels, um, what did you tell, what did you just say that like an average or a healthy blood sugar level should be? Well, when I went through medical school in the 1970s, um, the range was, I think, 75 to 125. That was considered a normal fasting glucose range. That's 50 milligrams per deciliter, for heaven's sakes, between 75 and 125. And the definition of diabetes was a blood fasting sugar of 126 milligrams per deciliter. Well, my goodness, if you're waiting to get the diagnosis of diabetes, you've had at least eight, maybe 10 years of damage to your microvasculature. That's why you're getting peripheral neuropathy. I say that we go back to uh, the ranges um, that you can find in areas that don't have McDonald's or uh, Western civilization. Go on a missions trip and do a fasting blood sugar uh, finger stick on some guy up in the Ecuadorian uh, mountains and who is 80 years old and see what his morning fasting blood sugar is. And I'll tell you what it is because I've done missionary work. It's 47. It's 55. And then they eat their uh, lower-carb, rich fat, saturated fat, uh, lard, and, and uh, their goat and lamb uh, beef jerky or, you know, jerky of the lamb. And then they work all through the morning, and they eat that at lunch. And their blood sugar uh, will go up to maybe 100, 110. And then they'll work real hard until dinner time, and their blood sugar will get back down to 55. Then they eat their dinner, which is low carb, but then they don't work so hard and they sleep through the whole night and their blood sugar much slower comes down to the 55 range and then they start the cycle all over again. So they live within a blood sugar range of roughly 45 to 105 range. But we in America say you're normal if you come without eating for 12 hours and your blood sugar is 105. The minute you open your mouth and eat, you're going to bust through 200 and blow out your blood sugar uh, silently until after eight years we can announce that you've done enough damage, we call you a diabetic. I mean, this training for doctors is pathetic. It's just pathetic. 
You know, it's interesting. Uh, a recent friend I went to high school with is was diagnosed with diabetes as well, you know, and it's also affected the circulation in his eyes. And what they're doing is they're doing some kind of a laser therapy to stop the blood vessels from bursting in his eyes, you know. And my thought is, boy, you need to go to the root of what's causing the problem because, like you said, everything boils down to the microcirculation and the blood sugars uh, that are in are creating damage to that microcirculation. Yeah, and I think so, really the research is pointing to the insulin effect, the hyperinsulinemia. So we're calling diabetes a blood sugar problem, but that's really the uh, symptom of it. What really is, is wrong is through the over-habitual multiple times a day, eating enough starch and carbohydrates, I don't care how good they are, and you make your insulin squirt out of your pancreas over and over and over and over and over again so that you now have hyperinsulinemia and you can't get your blood sugar down uh, even if you haven't eaten for 12 hours, why aren't we testing the insulin? Because the insulin is linked with the damage. It's a hormone. It's the biggest hormone damaging effect on our human bodies. I, you know, just to tell you, I had a patient the other day, or maybe it was today, and I saw the uh, report of the oncologist saying, well, now the patient has a, um, uh, a breast carcinoma stage 2 uh, amenable to, you know, localized lumpectomy. Uh, and they went on to say she's been on hormone therapy since 2006 to 2019. Uh, and, and he just puts that statement in there. And I said to myself, why doesn't he say, her blood sugars have been 98, 107, 108, 93, 100, and her insulins were always 12, 8, 15, you know, uh, and so forth. For heaven's sake, stop blaming things that don't cause cancer, and let's start talking about things that promote tumor growth called insulin. Insulin indiscriminately promotes fat growth. Tumor growth, it is a, the most, one of the most potent growth stimulating hormones in your body and no one worries about it. No one. But oh my goodness, don't, don't ask a question about natural hormones, you know. Right. Do you when see you... the hypocrisy in that? Yeah. Yeah, I I do, and you know, and you know, it also makes me very mindful, like of myself, because I've also noticed my blood sugars are are like higher, and I'm thinking, oh wow, but it's also affected vision, and so I have been becoming more strict, and I'm more strict than probably some people. So you know, I'm seeing another level as the older I get as well, and the impact that it's having. And now we have, you know, what we call metabolic syndrome, or you have your belly fat, or your muffin top, you know. And we're all worried about our muffin top, and we're not really realizing it's not just oh, going on a diet. There's um, a metabolic uh, problem going on with insulin, and that's one of the symptoms. Yeah, you cannot lose weight. You cannot lose that fat until you stop that insulin hormone from being at a certain level in your bloodstream. And if it is, I don't care what you do, you're not going to lose that fat. Okay, so real quick, if just in, in general, like what are the number of carbs someone should have a day that's a healthy source of carbs? 
honestly, if I was talking to someone, if I was a doctor practicing in, in a third world country where they are lucky to get one meal a day, I would say I'm not worried because their environment restricts, restricts them. But here in America, we are living in a, uh, a, a bath of carbohydrates from the horrible refined sugars and sodas to even uh, healthy carbs uh, that you would get in an apple or in, you know, an, uh, uh, you know a pear or, or, or some seeds and nuts. And, and if your fasting blood sugar is already in the high 90s uh, 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 and your insulin fasting is already above 5, then every carb matters. And, it, and you would need to uh, go on a, uh, a dietary program and some exercise, but primarily diet, that restricts your uh, carbohydrates to 25 grams uh, a day uh, until you get a blood level that says your morning fasting blood sugar is 80, 85 or less and your insulin is under 5, okay? Then you can start mm -hmm. cautiously adding in a little more 30, 35, 40 carb grams of good carbs. But <clears throat> I always tell my patients, good carbs become bad carbs when you've had too many carbs. And America suffers from having too many available carbs 24-7. Well, Dr. Um, LSR, uh, this past hour has been extremely informative. And one of the things that's amazing about your clinic is that you are actually a teaching um, clinic. Can you give our listeners your website so they can find out more information about your clinic and if anyone is interested yes, in finding more about what you do? Thank you. Yes, it's uh, Tustin Longevity Center. We have five uh, clinicians here that I'll be happy to see you. They're all great. And uh, our website is TLCDoctors, that's plural, TLCDoctors.com, TLCDoctors.com. Okay. And um, then you have a schedule of your upcoming, you now have YouTube videos and um, different things that you teach at the clinic uh, and all of your yes, different therapies. Okay. We have a, a uh, interactive seminar every, the second Thursday night of uh, every month, and we go by popular demand. If the audience wants uh, the next month to be, talk about natural hormones, we do that. If they want us to talk about cancer or Alzheimer's, they set the mode, and, and we, we deliver. We don't represent that we're specialists. We just represent that we're good old-fashioned general practitioners and former specialists that decided to just see the whole patient and not just one area. All right. Well, I want to thank you again so much for being on the program today. Um, hopefully, we can have you back and address another, you know, a topic in the future. And thank you again so much for spending some time with us after your busy day. <laughs> 